This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode number 26, recorded on April 16th, 2012, one day before tax day. Hope you all got your taxes in. So I'm your host, Tim Kripe, here from Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm here with several guests and several co-hosts. So to the co-hosts first, once again, Lionel Chow here is from Cincinnati. Welcome, Lionel. Hi, Tim. Nice to be back. Thank you for being here. Uh, Andy Kolb from Delaware. Thanks, Tim. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. And we have a special co-host today, Donna Ludwinski, all the way from North Dakota. Thank you, Tim, for inviting me. Yes, happy to have you here. And our two main guests are from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. The first is Ken DeSantis, who's a who's an associate professor of pediatrics and the clinical director of the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Program there. So welcome, Ken. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for uh, having us on today. Yeah, it's good to hear you again. Sorry I can't actually see you since this is audio only, but um, it's good to hear your voice again. And with him in his office is Paul Sundell. Paul is the, a professor of pediatrics and human oncology and the division director at University of Wisconsin in Madison. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Tim. We're very pleased to have a chance to talk together with uh, you and your co-host. And of course, as you guys know, this is special for me to have you on since I spent almost five years there in Madison as my first faculty job. And so publicly, I'll thank you, Paul, for giving me the opportunity to become a faculty member way back in 1995. And uh, I'll have certainly fond memories of my time there. You have great memories of you, Tim. It was a whole lot of fun working together. So it's good being able to continue together in this family of uh, pediatric oncology. So, you know, when I was there, we got to see a lot of your preclinical work in the use of the anti-GD2 antibody for neuroblastoma and to hear how it's progressed over the last couple of decades really um, is, is what we're here today to discuss. And I'm excited to hear how it's, it's come along. But could we back up just a minute, as I often like to do in our episodes, and just hear a little bit from each of you about how you got into pediatric oncology, how you got into neuroblastoma research and so forth. And, and my co-hosts will chime in with any questions whenever they want. So, Paul, can we just start with you? Thanks. So I, uh, I became interested in pediatric oncology in 1969 when I joined the laboratory of Fritz Bach, who had just completed the first successful allogeneic bone marrow transplant here at UW-Madison. Uh, I began working in the area of histocompatibility and uh, hoped that bone marrow transplantation might be a way to make an impact on childhood cancer. I then spent time in Boston uh, while in medical school and working in uh, cancer immunotherapy at the Farber Center. Initially, it was called the Jimmy Fund Building, and I had the chance to work in the Sydney Farber Labs in the uh, Redstone Building there. Uh, after that, I thought that I was going to study leukemia immunology and uh, graft versus leukemia responses. And in the process, uh, realized we could turn on NK cells with IL-2. And once we were turning on NK cells rather than T cells, it seemed it would be very helpful to try and uh, make them 
kill cancer cells by directing them with monoclonal antibody. So you've really been working in this area for a long time. How long have, would you say it's really taken to go from sort of the idea of antibodies and NK cells to where you are today? So we did the first experiments with Ralph Reisfeld's antibodies back in 1987 and uh, took a couple of years for that work to get published. But it was that in vitro work that led us to hypothesize that we should put these concepts together in patients. And it uh, took over 20 years to go from the preclinical in vitro work through in vivo preclinical work in mice and then phase one, phase two, phase three testing to get to the point of some clinical efficacy. That's really amazing. It's a tour de force. Ken, how about you? When did you get started? And I know you joined Paul's team when I was there, so it's been a while as well now. Yeah, it has. I uh, took my first faculty position actually at UCSF, and I was there for seven years and had the uh, good fortune of working with Kate Maffei there, who was an international leader in neuroblastoma research. And I had uh, helped Kate with the MIBG program there and became very interested in the immunotherapy of cancer, uh, initially doing some preclinical research uh, at UCSF, and then had the good fortune of working with Paul upon moving to Madison, and have had the opportunity to really bring some of the preclinical work into the clinic, which has been very exciting. That is exciting. We actually had Kate Mathay on our podcast, uh, episode 14, if listeners want to go back to that that episode. Co-hosts, do you guys have any questions about uh, their history? It sounds like you guys have been doing this a long time, and, and uh, it's, it's certainly a, a, a testament to, to determination. <laughs> Indeed. Research usually is. Donna, any comments or questions? Yeah, I was curious. I know that you have a, a fairly new MIBG program there. I was, when did that start? So that started uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, and we've uh, done quite a few treatments. We've been pretty busy. I've treated over 15 kids now. Uh, with MIBG. So the program is uh, fully functional and a really nice facility here. Oh, that's great to hear. I didn't know that. So that's another yeah. referral center now. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to ask Paul a quick question. I mean, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning that you performed, you were at uh, Madison when you performed the first uh, trans allogeneic transplantations. Taking sort of now a 30 thousand foot view at where we've come since the beginning of that uh, technology, is, is this still a a few, this is obviously still a field that's uh, in evolution. How, how do you think we've been doing with uh, transplantation in pediatric oncology over this, the, the course of this, this time? Great question. And first, to clarification, I was uh, 18 years old when the first transplant was done, and I was not involved in that. Okay. <laughs> One year later, as a sophomore undergrad, that I took a job in that lab doing the equivalent of entry-level lab work and washing test tubes. But it was great entry for me to get a chance to see how science could integrate lab work into clinical medicine. And uh, so much of what I've done since then, in part, was based on questions that came up during those years in Fritz Bach's lab. But the uh, 30,000 foot elevation question is I think pediatric bone marrow transplant is continuing to be at the forefront. So many concepts in uh, application of oncologic principles and immunologic principles Initially, it was thought that the transplant itself was really just providing a reconstitution of the hematopoietic system after getting rid of all the leukemia, but it became pretty clear through a number of separate papers, including some really important work out of Seattle and out of the International Transplant Registry, that this graft-versus-leukemia component 
was probably the most important mechanism as to how transplants are curing leukemia. And I think over the past uh, decade, it's become more obvious that that GVL effect is mediated not only by T cells, but also by NK cells. And there may be separate ways to differentially take advantage of those different kinds of effector cells in different clinical settings, not only for leukemias, but also for solid tumors. So that's where we're hoping to go, and it's part of the area that Ken has been putting a lot of his focus in the bone marrow transplant arena. Our lab has been putting our focus in using antibodies to direct effector cells, and I think the time is coming soon for us to put these concepts together. For our listeners who may not be familiar with NK cells, could you give us a little primer? Yes, NK cells, uh, back when I was a, a graduate student and medical student, were called null cells. Nobody really knew what they were doing. People understood uh, that there were T cells and B cells that had very specific functions and complex genetically rearranged receptors. And there was this small population of lymphocytes that looked a little bit more granular, a little bit more large than your conventional resting T cell or B cell, uh, but didn't have B cell markers or T cell markers. And it wasn't clear what they were doing. Uh, over the past 30 years now, it's clear that these cells have a whole separate array of receptor molecules that involve adhesive interactions and tripping interactions. They're a very primitive component of the immune system that predates the B and T cell genetically rearranged receptor components. Uh, NK-like cells are present in a variety of species that don't have T cells or B cells. And these cells are, are there really in order to distinguish between healthy, normal resting tissue and tissue that's infected or stressed or abnormal in some way. And they're designed to destroy that uh, abnormal tissue. And they were identified initially in cancer immune in vitro and in vivo settings, uh, and also based on their role in rejecting uh, bone marrow allografts. But I think that the real challenge is to better understand these receptors and their specificity and use them in a clinically controlled way to have a real impact against malignancies. And I think the last decade has shown several great examples of how that's happening. I think we've got some leads as to how to take better advantage. So Donna, as our um, person who, I hesitate to call you a lay person because you're so well educated now in this field, but um, does that make sense to you and do you have any questions about that? Well, I do. Um, I know that uh, one of the fascinating points that you both uh, talked a little bit about in Tübingen at the meeting in February in Germany was about um, the cure uh, cure ligand mismatch and how that affects um, the function of the NK cells. Is that right? Can you explain um, how that uh, determination came about and and why that you know uh, affects the activation of the NK cells? Maybe Ken should start with the allogeneic story since that's what came up first in the setting of bone marrow transplant and then I can go through some of the autologous work. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was a very uh, seminal paper paper published, um, I think, in 2002 in uh, Science um, Journal, where a group of investigators in Italy uh, transplanted a number of adult patients with uh, leukemia, either acute myeloid leukemia or acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And these were all haploidentical transplants, so they were transplants from either uh, parents or brothers and sisters who were only half matched with the patient. In order to do that kind of a transplant, you have to remove the T cells from the graft 
so that the T cells don't attack the patient's normal tissues. Uh, a very serious transplant-related complication that is known as graft-versus-host disease. So these investigators removed the T cells from the graft and did the transplant, and what they noted was that there was a striking difference in the survival and the relapse rate based on some characteristics relating to the natural killer cells of the donor. So natural killer cells have receptors on their surface, and these receptors react with various uh, molecules or ligands present on the surface of other cells. And some of the receptors are inhibitory, so they turn the natural killer cell off, and others can be activating and help the natural killer cell work more effectively. And what these investigators found, that if the natural killer cells of the donor uh, could react against patients' ligands that would turn the natural killer cells off, so the inhibitory receptors on the natural killer cells were engaged, essentially inactivating them, those patients had a substantially uh, lower risk, um, excuse me, higher risk of relapse compared to donors that didn't have that kind of relationship with the patient. In other words, if the donor's natural killer cells were allowed to remain active, uh, there was a very low relapse risk. In fact, it was zero relapse risk in the patients who had AML, whereas when the right immunologic setup wasn't present, uh, there was a much, much higher risk of relapse in the patient and a much poorer survival. So this was really one of the first bits of uh, evidence suggesting that these natural killer cells seem to play a very, very important role in preventing leukemic relapse after the transplant if the T cells were taken out of the equation and couldn't participate in that logic activity. So the goal then would be to match the HLA typing, to so the graft takes, but mismatch the the typing of that receptor of that on the NK cells, the cure receptor. Exactly, exactly right. And, and those, fortunately, those don't track together. I'm assuming because they're not on the same chromosome. So, how often can one find a mismatch versus a match? Uh, great question. So, for example, in our uh, haploidentical transplant trial that we're running right now. Uh, we've been able to find a mismatch in all of the patients who have participated in the study. Overall, um, you can find a mismatch in, I would say, roughly two-thirds of the, of the um, uh, donor-recipient uh, pairs. Okay. It also depends on whether you have brothers and sisters that you can tap into or just looking at the parents. Right. So one okay. slight clarification in what you said, Tim. Uh, on the one hand, yes, there's an advantage of doing an HLA-identical sibling transplant. And if you do have HLA-identical siblings, you can select potentially for one that is cure mismatch. But separately, if you don't have an HLA-identical sibling, uh, you can do a haploidentical transplant. And as Ken said, you'd have to T-cell deplete to avoid GVH. And because the patient is getting ablative or a very potent immunosuppressive therapy, that patient shouldn't reject the marrow. And in that setting, you can use a donor that would be cure mismatched and be able to take advantage of that to get this anti-leukemic effect. So you can do it regardless of whether you've got an HLA matched sibling or a haploidentical. The important difference is you can't have any T cells around if you're doing a haplo. Sure. Okay, that makes sense. And if I could ask just really quickly, we know that uh, you know when you want to match a uh, donor marrow to uh, a 
recipient, we're looking at uh, eight uh, different markers. Do you know how many of these uh, cure markers and uh, ligands you need to look at to determine whether there's a mismatch or not? Yes, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a lot we still don't know, but there are three different uh, cure receptor ligand pairs that we can evaluate, uh, that we currently evaluate right now for their inhibitory contribution to NK cell function. There's another set of markers on the natural cube cell that are actually activated. So we now have the ability not only to look at these inhibitory receptors where we want a mismatch uh, between the inhibitory receptors that the donor has and the HLA ligands that they're interacting with in the patient, but we also can look at these activating receptors present on the patient's natural killer cells. And we use both of those bits of information to try to pick the ideal donor whose NK cells is going to have the greatest capability of recognizing and destroying uh, the cancer cells present in the patient. So now the, the what research has done up until recently was all retrospective, right? No one sort of realized this until they looked back and said, hey, there was a mismatch and they did better. That, that's right. And so now the goal is prospectively um, choose those preferentially. Exactly. We look at the peer genotyping of, of the potential donors. We look at their, um, it's called B-haplotype, which are the activating receptors. And then we pick prospectively the best donor that might have the greatest uh, anti-tumor effect against the, the patient's cancer. Okay, and I think you had you had told the story up until the, the publication in the retrospective review in, in leukemia. How did you make that transition to neuroblastoma? So most of the data certainly in the field of allogeneic transplantation, was really focused on acute lymphoblastic leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia. And there really wasn't a lot of data uh, looking at solid tumors, although there have been several case reports uh, published uh, looking at this kind of an approach for children with a number of different uh, sarcomas. The jump to neuroblastoma came from a, the recognition that neuroblastoma cells are sensitive to NK cell mediated killing. Uh, we know that from uh, work that Paul's done and, and others have done. Uh, and then also there's been some very interesting clinical work that's been published now looking at patients with neuroblastoma who have had autologous transplantation. And these uh, patients can be broken up into two different groups, patients who are actually cure uh, ligand mismatch with themselves and those that don't have a cure ligand mismatch. And as you mentioned, Tim, the cure genes and the genes that code for HLA are uh, inherited independently. So it's actually possible for the same person to have cure genes expressed uh, for which there is no HLA ligand that will turn the NK cell off. And when that type of analysis was done on patients who have had autologous transplants for neuroblastoma, there was a significantly higher risk of relapse in patients who didn't have the right uh, immunologic setup, meaning that they had cure genes for which they also expressed the cure, the, uh, cure ligands, that is their HLA typing, would turn off all of the NK cells based on the cure receptor ligand interactions. Whereas those that had NK cells which expressed cure for which they didn't have the all of the inhibitory ligands present in their HLA typing had a much lower risk of relapse. And this suggested that these NK cells were playing a very important 
role in, in mediating control of the neuroblastoma following transplantation. So if I can, if I can just add to that. So, so in other words, in the autologous setting, you really you have a you have a setup where you have a favorable cure profile and an unfavorable cure profile, and in the favorable setting, you have a, a potential for a uh, continuation of an immune response that would inhibit the the neuroblastoma. Is that is that a fair summary? Yes, exactly. We're referring to the paper, the 2009 paper in clinical cancer research. Is that right? That had 155 patients. Does it sound right? Yes. I'll I'll put a note of that um, so that listeners can refer to that paper. Great. Thanks, Don. I forgot to Mm -hmm. mention at the very beginning that you are our TWIPO executive producer. So, uh, (laughs) and this is your first appearance actually on Twippo. Thanks can for you, uh, Can you comment on, on how in the in the setting where you have a favorable cure profile, so you have a patient who has the potential for an uh, anti-tumor NK response, um, what's different in the patient post-transplant or post-chemotherapy that would allow you to manipulate that versus the neuroblastoma just growing up de novo inside of them? Uh, why is that response not turned on uh, innately? Great question. It's a great question. At this point, I don't think that there's a lot of data on that. I don't think that there's yet been a really thorough study looking at the cure profile, as you'd say, in the general population versus patients diagnosed with specific cancers versus patients with that cancer that are diagnosed with a high stage or a low stage. This is an important question to get to. And the fact we're even having this conversation really reflects a bit of a change in perspective regarding these cured genes and how this profile might influence anti-tumor potential. Up until two years ago, the discussion of cure, cure ligand match or mismatch really was being talked about only in the setting of allogeneic transplant with this most recent data uh, looking at this same phenomenon in the autologous transplant setting. But based on those publications, Uh, we went back and looked at data from a clinical trial that we had done using this anti-GD2 antibody for neuroblastoma that was linked to IL-2. But it was a study that didn't involve transplant at all. And we hypothesized that this cure ligand and cure receptor match-mismatch setting might not really be controlling anything to do with the transplant itself, but it's really regulating the strength of the NK response. And so we wanted to see if it would predict how patients were doing in the setting of NK-based immunotherapy in the absence of transplant. And so we went back to analyze a phase two study that we did through the children's oncology group using an antibody, an anti-GD2 humanized antibody that's been linked directly to IL-2, a molecule made by Ralph Rice and Steve Gillies that we've been developing for over the past decade. And that phase two study treated children with relapsed neuroblastoma with this agent. 38 patients were treated. Five patients went into complete remission. Seven, excuse me, two patients had a striking clinical improvement that didn't meet a a response criteria. And all of the patients that responded were in a group of 23 patients that had less bulky disease, which was consistent with our animal data. So then we asked the question, does this uh, response have anything to do with the cure phenotype? And all seven of the patients that showed response or benefit 
we're in the group of individuals that were in the peer mismatched profile. Uh, none of the patients that were matched showed clinical benefit. So this, to our knowledge, was the first time anybody had actually looked at this cure profile in the setting of a non-transplant immunotherapy that's acting on K-cells, and we showed statistically significant correlation. It was a small study, p-value was 0.03, it's statistically significant, but it clearly needs to be reproduced in a larger way. So we're in the process that in, in four separate studies where we've got data coming in from patients that are getting different kinds of NK-based immunotherapy to see if we can look back at those four separate studies and see if their response correlates to this cure-cure ligand relationship. So you only have seen this with the antibody that's linked itself to IL-2, not with the antibody that's not linked? It's the only place we've looked so far. We've got the samples from the big phase three study using the chimeric antibody with IL-2 and GMCSF. That big uh, phase three study was published in the New England Journal in uh, fall of 2010, and it showed uh, a significant improvement in two-year disease-free survival for the children that got immunotherapy, 66% versus 46% for those children with high-risk neuroblastoma. We've now got those samples and are doing the typing, but all of the clinical results are blinded while we're doing all of the typing. Unblind the clinical results on these uh, DNA specimens until we've got all the quality control of the genotyping completed. So my guess is it's not going to be another six to eight months before we're able to look back at that same set of patients in that big phase three trial and see whether the cure relationships were predictive in that setting as well. Can I ask you, in your phase two study, you mentioned that the, all the uh, responders had the cure mismatch. What proportion of those patients with cure mismatched uh, responded? And out of the, I know it's a small study, but out of the, all the patients, what proportion of patients are cure mismatched and how much are cure matched? Yes. So the second one is easier to answer. At least in the papers that have been published so far, uh, it looks like generally 60% of uh, Caucasian individuals are cure mismatched, while 40% are cure matched. And if that's the relationship that anyone has with their own genes, because your cure genes are inherited independently of your HLA genes, uh, that relationship should be the same in an allogeneic setting. And as Ken said, roughly two-thirds, not that different from 60%, of the allogeneic population uh, is going to be cure mismatched for a potential donor. Uh, so uh, that's the relationship. 60% of the population is cure mismatched for these important cure inhibitory genes. Uh, now, in the small phase two study that we did, uh, it was slightly over 60% of the population in that study was cure mismatch. So that fit with what was published previously. And uh, of the individuals that were cure mismatched, I think there were 23 or so in the study, and seven patients in that study showed some benefit. But because it's a phase two study, uh, these patients had a fairly sizable amount of cancer in them. Yes. Some of them had disease that you could measure by MRI or CT scan, and even those that didn't have disease that was that bulky had disease that you could see by MIBG or by bone marrow histology. So in rough terms, a patient that's relapsed with a macroscopic 
radiologically measurable disease might have 10 to the 12th cancer cells, someone that you can evaluate only by MIBG or bone marrow aspirate might have the 10 to the 9th, 10 to the 11th, while a patient that's in remission with no evidence of disease at all uh, might be 10 to the 8th or less. And our animal data would say that it's the, the patient that's in remission that has the best chance of responding to this immunotherapy. So let me ask you this. So for the 40% that don't aren't a mismatch themselves or for those patients for whom you cannot find a donor with a cure mismatch, is it possible to harness this NK power, as it were, by mismatching or by matching the activating receptors? And would that overcome or do you have to have a mismatch on the cure? The questions you're asking are absolutely the top priorities to try and answer over the next three to five years. And the only way to do it is to do this kind of large-scale genotyping and put it together with the clinical data from large clinical trials and be able to look backwards and then ask those questions. With specifics, though, let's take somebody who is cure-matched, and you'd say we can't take advantage of this uh, cure potential. That cure potential seems to be important in the clinical setting, but we're not sure if it's essential, for example, for a patient in remission. That if you were transplanting someone or doing this sort of NK-based immunotherapy for somebody that's in complete remission, you might not need quite as much cure advantage as if you're transplanting someone or doing this NK-based therapy for somebody with a small amount of detectable disease. This is an answerable question that we should be able to address with clinical data that's currently being collected. But even if you're dealing with a clinical setting where you've proven that the cure-match relationship isn't enough, there's a couple approaches. One is the one you suggest. Maybe the cure-activating receptors and maximizing those might outweigh the absence of the cure-match, uh, the cure-mismatch, rather, for the inhibitory receptors. In other words, balance the activating and inhibitory. This is an approach that Jeff Miller in Minneapolis is really pursuing in his AML studies. Another approach, though, is to block the cure receptors directly. And there is a monoclonal antibody that's been made in Italy, and the team of uh, Moretta has been involved in this. Uh, this antibody is in early clinical trials. It's a blocking antibody that binds to the cure receptors without giving a triggering signal. And so it blocks the inhibitory signal transmission through the cure receptor. One could imagine some future time where you would do the cure genotyping on a given patient. If their cure mismatched, you'd go ahead with the immunotherapy. If their cure matched, you'd potentially give the immunotherapy, but use this antibody to block cure receptors at the same time. Uh, it sounds like a creative solution. Paul, are you testing for the cure uh, mismatch with the current humanized antibody trial? Is that part of um, the data that's being collected? Yes. So the trial that's open now, we're collecting that. Mm -hmm. We've got it from uh, the past trial and we published that result. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a paper by Delgado et al. that Ken and I were involved in. And we're also looking at this in the large phase three neuroblastoma trial I mentioned uh, uh, that was mm -hmm. published in the New England Journal. But we're continuing to collect, collect specimens from that trial for patients that are getting treated now. Uh, and then we've got two completely unrelated NK-based immunotherapy trials from which we're collecting genotyping data so we can go back and see if it correlates with anti-tumor effects. What about the idea of using NK uh, cell infusions um, that are 
mismatched. Maybe Ken should pursue that one. So, uh, yes, we're very uh, interested in, in, in pursuing that uh, option. And one of the um, other ways that we can potentially get around the care-induced inhibition uh, is an approach we're very interested in, and, th and that is actually uh, taking these donor NK cells and expanding and activating them in the laboratory and then reinfusing the activated NK cells into the patient. And it's possible that by activating these cells uh, in the laboratory, you might be able to overcome uh, what would otherwise be natural inhibition induced by the cure ligands. So that's something that, that we're exploring right now. Our current protocol does allow for NK cell uh, infusions to be given to patients post-transplant, but right now we're just giving the NK cells unmanipulated. We, we isolate them from the donor uh, using uh, antibodies and immunomagnetic uh, columns, and then uh, we're infusing those NK cells directly into the donor. But we think a better approach might be to uh, expand and activate these cells first before infusing them. That's something that's uh, we're, we're in the process of uh, working out all the methodology to do that. Maybe you can comment just as a uh, as a summary point. You'd referenced the the idea of using the genotype to determine therapy, and and uh, because these you know, this cure typing, this genotyping is uh, readily available. Where we are in that process, and 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 what you advise patients when they ask you for that in in the uh, setting of ongoing therapy. So, in terms of our current haplo protocol, we are basically for for the uh, haplo study. That's part of the study is doing all of the necessary cure typing and HLA typing of the of the patient in order to pick the best cure cure ligand uh, mismatch donor-recipient pair. For other diseases, like uh, acute uh, myeloid leukemia, for example, there is a significant amount of data suggesting that the cure-cure ligand mismatch donor-recipient pair is, is very advantageous. So that's become part of our normal uh, search strategy now when we look for an unrelated donor for a leukemia patient who's going to transplant. Uh, the first thing is we want to try to identify a suitable HLA match donor, but the next thing that we look at is the cure typing. So that's actually been built into our uh, donor search strategy for patients with acute leukemia currently. Is there any downside to doing that? Does it affect engraftment or any other parameters? No, there doesn't. Uh, there's a study ongoing to really evaluate uh, this uh, carefully, but from what's been published to date, there doesn't seem to be any, any downside to choosing a cure mismatched uh, donor. So in the setting of allotransplant, I think the data are very clear that using this as an additional selection criteria really should be making a difference because of the large number of retrospective analyses that have shown the better prognosis for individuals that get a cure mismatched donor or that get a donor that has an advantageous cure activating haplotype picture. And there needs to be a bit of research done as to the importance of looking at it the cure inhibition side or the cure activating side, or maybe both together. In contrast, in the setting of immunotherapy in the absence of allogeneic cells, uh, I think the verdict is not yet out. We've really only got one published paper that I'm aware of showing that in the absence of any kind of transplant, this cure matching or mismatch is making a difference. But I think it's based on solid treatment and it would propose that if you're doing an immunotherapy that's based on NK cells playing a role in getting rid of the tumor, uh, 
you're best off paying attention to the peer relationships. I think there's going to be many more research studies done in both neuroblastoma and a variety of other diseases that will test this hypothesis, and my guess is it'll confirm it, but the, the verdict is not out yet. Well, if it happens, then I think this kind of cure relationship analysis will be part of immunotherapy for cancers. Yes, doing more immunotherapies. So IL-2 and antibody-mediated uh, ADCC of cancers is clearly an NK-mediated phenomenon, but work on with agents like analidomide or IL-15 uh, and several others are likely acting through natural cells as well. And in those settings, paying attention to receptors will, I think, be a very important. So do any of the concomitant drugs we use today, steroids or other um, immunosuppressants for GVHD, do they affect NK function? Yes. We've actually uh, been looking at this, and it turns out, uh, as you might expect, that uh, steroids are very significantly affect NK cell function in an adverse fashion. So when patients are on, and we've um, looked at uh, data from our patients who have been treated by haplotransplants, some of these patients have developed uh, graft-versus-host disease and had to be treated with steroids uh, to control the uh, graft-versus-host disease, and those patients had markedly diminished uh, natural killer cell function. On the other hand, some of the other immune suppressive drugs that we routinely use post-transplant to prevent graft-versus-host disease, such as cyclosporin, uh, appears to have a fairly minimal effect on NK cell function. So it really depends on the specific immune suppressive agent uh, that you're using. So that would be very careful, to, uh, important to know as we move forward and discover that this is an important, you know, pathway for tumor cell killing that we're not getting in the way of that pathway. Do you think there's differences in timing that make a difference? Is it important that is all the activity of the NK cells sort of within the first week or is it something that's going on for the subsequent year? Do we have any idea? So uh, it's a great question, Tim. I don't know that we have a lot of data to, to address uh, how long the NK cells uh, that we're giving at the time of transplant are functioning. We know that when uh, NK cells are infused in a non-transplant setting, uh, such as some of the work that's being done uh, in Minnesota that, uh, by Jeff Miller that Paul mentioned, the NK cells in that setting don't tend to stick around very long. So they may last, uh, you know, maybe a few weeks after the infusion, but then you can no longer uh, find them, at least in the bloodstream. In patients undergoing allogeneic uh, transplantation, uh, it's very difficult to track the NK cells that you're infusing at the time of transplant because you're converting the patient's uh, immune system into the donor's immune system, and then all of the NK cells, both the mature ones that are being infused along with the stem cell graft, as well as new NK cells that are being produced from donor stem cells, really indistinguishable from one another. So it becomes a much harder uh, question to address how long those mature NK cells are, are functioning in, in patient. So obviously there's still a lot of, a lot of work to be done. I think we're, we're sort of running out of time for our podcast, so I wonder if we could just go around the room, as it were, the virtual room. For one last question, I've got a zinger to end it with. So, Donna, do you have a last-burning question? Well, and this may be unfair because it's kind of a big question, but I'm curious if you see a day where some of these things are going to be integrated, um, like, you know, this whole business about you seeing antibodies used and how the NK cells can augment that um, that action. What about uh, modified T cells? 
is there, do you see a day where that's going to be another um, add on to, you know, to a whole therapy plan? Or modified NK cells. I think that day is today, but I don't think that yeah, it's yet to be integrated into standard frontline therapy for all comers. But at the research level, there are a number of centers that are doing a genetically modified T cells or genetically modified NK cells or allogeneic NK cell infusions, or as you started with, with antibodies. Uh, I think that in the setting of antibody-mediated uh, cancer therapy, we are gradually identifying more and more antigenic targets that one can make a monoclonal antibody. So I think that there's a likelihood that a majority of the solid tumors that are seen in pediatric cancer and adult cancers will be targeted by antibodies, antibodies that can mediate antibody-dependent cell-mediated killing by NK cells. And in that setting, I think we'll want to give NK cell activating agents like IL-2 or lenalidomide or IL-15. Uh, I think in that setting, we'll probably want to take advantage of cure uh, mismatch relationships or cure blockade. With respect to the timing, though, this was your question, Tim. I think if you're going to do this in the autologous setting, your best bet, based on strong preclinical data, is to get rid of as much cancer as you can with surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Once the patient's in remission and really not in any position where chemotherapy is going to provide greater benefit, that's when you use these immunostimulatory approaches so that you can maximize your anti-tumor effect and do it in a way where you're not giving cytotoxic drugs that are lowering your lymphocyte counter their function. Lionel, last question. Yes, and I think you touched on this just a little bit earlier for our listeners. You mentioned that you, know, you project that people will be looking at these types of therapies, not just in neuroblastoma and leukemia, but in all sorts of other pediatric solid tumors. Do you know of ongoing work either in your group or in other groups in which uh, this is, is currently being done so that our listeners can sort of get an idea of uh, what is actually the lay of the land out there right now? So uh, just for example, the uh, protocol that we have up and running is not limited uh, specifically for patients with neuroblastoma. It's a haplotransplant uh, protocol with NK cell infusions for patients with very high risk for recurrent solid tumors, including diseases like Ewing sarcoma and rhabdomyosarcoma. So we're looking at other uh, solid tumors uh, in addition to neuroblastoma right now. Uh, we're in the process of developing a successor trial that will look at a very novel graft uh, processing technique uh, again, in the setting of haploidentical transplants, uh, but this technique has been piloted in Europe right now, and the T-cell depletion allows for the retention of a very specific subset of T-cells called gamma-delta T-cells in the graft. And this is a subpopulation of T-cells that appears not to be involved in causing graft-versus-host disease, but there's quite a bit of in uh, vitro and preclinical data suggesting that these gamma-delta T cells can have a very uh, pronounced anti-tumor effect. So in this uh, new clinical trial that we're just currently uh, developing, patients with um, any high-risk sarcoma or relapsed solid tumor uh, could be eligible to receive a haplotransplant using this unique graft processing methodology so that not only will NK cells remain in the graft and be able to uh, exhibit an anti-tumor effect, but these gamma-delta T-cells will also remain in the graft and might be able to mediate uh, further anti-tumor activity. Maybe someday we'll have a podcast about mismatches of the gamma-delta T-cells. <laughs> Andy, your last question. 
Yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to ask a summary question because I think this uh, this gets very confusing. Um, it, you know, is it, is it fair to say that in the allogeneics setting, all things being equal between donors, a cure mismatch is uh, a favorable cure mismatch is, uh, is the way to go. And then in the autologous setting, what we're talking about with with cure is is still sort of in the experimental realm, but uh, we're learning a lot very quickly and it's a it's a very promising potential therapy yeah i think that the, the issue with, of course the autologous setting is that you don't really have a choice whether you're gear matched or mismatched with yourself so there's not a lot of room to play there In the allogeneic setting you do have the option of trying to find a donor who has the best immunologic setup to attack the patient's cancer so that i think is one of the big advantages uh, for allogeneic uh, therapy with regards to the cure, cure mismatch um, principle of trying to maximize an anti-tumor effect. I, I think in the allogeneic setting, a question that's going to be coming up in the next few years is if you have the choice between an HLA identical sibling donor that is cure matched or a haplo donor that is cure mismatched, which one is going to be the best donor in the setting of treating a malignancy? And up until now, people would have always picked the HLA-matched sibling. And it's possible that the anti-tumor effect of the cure mismatch in the setting of the haplo might in the future outweigh that if the appropriate manipulations to avoid GVH and still get good engraftment and immune reconstitution can work. So, Paul, I have a final question for you. I think it's a zinger. I, I'd be and surprised it's, if it weren't. <laughs> it's specifically for you. Um, I know that... You know, it must be quite gratifying to see uh, immunotherapy coming to fruition after uh, these many years of work. Can you tell us what you see as the differences in the current environment compared to maybe 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago? What it was like to get these kinds of trials going, to generate these kinds of data, to get funding for these kind of trials, and as a society, are we heading in the right direction or the wrong direction? As a society, I think that we're very lucky to be in a, a country that provides research support to innovative ideas, and I'm very excited about the direction where cancer immunotherapy is going. Uh, the environment has changed in a number of ways. I joined the faculty here in 1980 and have been trying very diligently to increase the number of individuals on our faculty who are interested cancer immunology, immunotherapy, and there weren't very many pediatric, pediatric oncologists training in the past two decades and decades that had these interests. Over the past decade, many more people are be, being interested, so we're excited to have additional colleagues joining us here in Madison that have this as their focus. So what's different about now versus then? I think back in the 1970s, there were a number of ways you could cure cancers in mice using the immune system but they were all highly manipulated in order to maximize the immune system's ability to kill the cancer. And over the next 20 years, with a few exceptions, most clinical trials of immunotherapy took a mechanism that worked in mice under very select circumstances. And then because of technological limitations, tried that approach in patients with cancer that were in a very different setting of their disease than the setting that worked in the mice. So even though the therapy was somewhat analogous, the clinical setting wasn't at all in parallel. The studies failed, and the, the non-immunologist pointed to this and said, clearly, cancer immunotherapy is never going to work. It's really been over the last decade that a number of approaches 
vaccines for prostate cancer, checkpoint blockade for melanoma, ADCC with uh, effector cell activators for neuroblastoma. They've been tested in large phase three trials in a setting where what you're testing in the patients corresponds exactly to how the immunotherapy in mice and the results clinically parallel what you would have expected from the mouse data. So I think science works, and I think if we design our experiments with that in mind, we're going to keep on being successful. I love the positive attitude. I wish you all the best. Uh, may you get as much funding as you need. <laughs> that seems to be always the constant challenge. So thank you both, Ken and Paul, for being here. We really appreciate your comments today. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Yes. And Andy, thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having me. This is great. Thanks, Lionel, for joining us again, of course. Thank you. And Donna, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on finally. Thank you. So if our, discussion. Yes. If our listeners uh, have any questions for Dr. DeSantis or Dr. Sandell, I'd be happy to pass them along to them. Please send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org, or post them on the iTunes website. You can also follow us on Twitter at TWIPO Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes, or I usually send out a tweet after we record one to whet your appetite. By, uh, you can get those by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. As usual, thanks to Donna, our executive producer, for helping us with this podcast, Pat Buckley, our creativity consultant, Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, which is a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. So remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.